We just need everybody to pitch in and say, hey, we've got dirt roads out here. They really are what we call copper, and we need you to pave those roads. Give us some fiber. Welcome to another special episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast and our new podcast series, YNC Broadband Matters. I'm Lisa Gonzalez with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. NC Broadband Matters is a North Carolina nonprofit. Their mission is to attract, support, and champion the universal availability of affordable, reliable, high-capacity Internet access, which is necessary for thriving local communities, including local businesses and a local workforce, so each can compete in the global economy. The group has created the North Carolina chapter of CLIC, the Coalition for Local Internet Choice. We're collaborating with NC Broadband Matters to present this series that touches on issues that, while certainly affect folks in North Carolina, also impact people in other states. In this fourth episode, which is titled North Carolina's Unique Broadband History and Lessons for Moving Forward, Christopher talks with Jane Smith-Patterson. Jane Smith-Patterson is one of the state's broadband leaders. Her family has roots in North Carolina that go back centuries, and she's dedicated her life to equal and civil rights and digital technology. She's worked for three presidents, for North Carolina's governors, and in the private sector. You'll hear her mention the first United States Rural Internet Access Authority, known for a time as the RIAA, which later became the ENC Authority. She's led the charge to connect rural communities across the state. Jane's list of accomplishments is too long for me to mention here, but she's just the person we need to discuss North Carolina's unique broadband history and to offer wisdom looking forward. In addition to talking about some of the specifics that explain why North Carolina has such a strong standing in technology, Jane and Christopher talk about a few setbacks, including the state's adoption of HB 129, which preempts local broadband authority. Now let's hear Christopher speak with Jane Smith-Patterson. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Another bonus episode in the Why North Carolina Broadband Matters series, where we're exploring better broadband internet access in North Carolina. And today we have the perfect guest to really get a sense of the past, present, and future of it. Welcome to the show, Jane Smith-Patterson, a partner with Broadband Catalyst. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing well, and uh, you know, this uh, it's a very brief title for all of the things you've accomplished, uh, all the things you're still working on. Uh, we'll talk about that um, as we as we enter into this interview. Uh, but but Jane, I'd like you to just briefly tell us what Broadband Catalyst is. Broadband Catalyst is a partnership of three of us who've been very much involved in uh, in developing um, access to science and technology in North Carolina and to broadband technology not just in North Carolina, but um, some of us, like myself, have worked all over the, the world um, on broadband. And, and some of us have worked in government, uh, like I have. Some of us have worked in private sector, um, some for nonprofits. And, uh, you know, I've worked in everything from a multinational corporation to now down to three of us in <laughs> broadband <laughs> catalyst. <laughs> so. why, is, why is the name catalyst appropriate here for what you do? Because that's what's necessary uh, in order to get broadband through, and you know, you know, to me, a catalyst is something that really gets it moving, and at least comes up with the initial, you know, uh, 
pizzazz to work with communities or with states or the world and are willing to take the slings and arrows. I guess I would consider a cannonball catalytic, right, <laughs> during, the, during the wars. But anyway, um, and I think that's what we're like. We're really there to encourage people to um, get involved in bringing the Internet to their area. And to if we work with them to do that, we can do everything from the working at the local level with creating uh, community plans to, you know, using our mapping capability to map where they, you know, are and, and, and where the folks are and also to help them write grants to get funds and to uh, be there for like today. I, I was on the phone this afternoon with um, the folks in Tennessee in Irwin, which now has a gigabit network. and. We've been involved with them, um, and they have a huge, wonderful network there. Oh, yeah. You should interview them sometime. Lee Brown. So. Oh, I've, I've talked with him. Isn't uh, Lee great? Yeah. Yes, yes. And, and the work they've done is the model of that, that incremental effort. It's brilliant. I know. And he's going to come, I think, to uh, Deb and I, or two of us, and Bob and Catalyst are working on a conference on January the 8th, where for the first time, you know, we've got the federal government uh, saying they're going to support um, opportunity zones. And within those zones, not only can you uh, have private sector investment or investors involved, but the government can be there and the banks and the foundations with the federal instruments that are out there now and some of the tax advantages that are there. Maybe with these opportunity zones, which are the sort of, you know, poverty-oriented zones, that we can get broadband into those areas. Yeah, right. So. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'll actually be in the audience that day. I'll be a little bit late but um, I'm going to happen to be in the Raleigh area, and I'm looking forward to seeing that show. We're going to come back to broadband specifically, but one of the things that, that I was really interested in as I was looking at your biography is that, I don't know, you seem to feel like science is important. <laughs> you've, you've done a lot of work on it, and I'm curious what that, where that comes from. It comes from my family. I grew up in, in Columbus County which is a very small, well, it's a big county, second uh, second largest land area in the state, but it's probably the smallest population, um, but um, has swamps and it's got the ocean on, you know, when you go across from Brunswick to there. My dad, uh, who was born in 1887, and was I was born when he was in his almost 60s, he, um, he believed strongly that uh, science and education and technology were important because he's uh his great-grandfather was a French doctor who came here and served in that area of the state, which would have been the sticks back at that time in the 1800s. And so education was passed down, and it was seen as the key to your future, key to your health, key to your economy, uh, and that science was very much a part of that. And, and you know, was, he died when I was nine. But he did see me actually do my first science experiment with my brother, <laughs> my brother who my brother who became um, won the Herman Obrist Award, the uh, Rocket Scientist Award. Uh, my brother wanted to as much older than I am, but about seven years, and he wanted to uh, to see what would happen when you. Uh, he had heard he was older. Remember this. He had heard that if you put a match inside a can and you put a, t- a top on it, that uh, and you didn't you know let oxygen get to it. it it would not explode. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we tried that out on the back porch <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we, did, we uh, kept it not quite long enough because when we took the top off, you know, whoosh, <laughs> the fire came out. <laughs> so, so, uh, and later we blew a hole in the floor upstairs that the chemistry set, but you know, we were, um, we were encouraged to be experimental. And at that part, at that time down there, uh, you know, you could go 14 miles away from our home and people need to remember this is in the, late 50s, 
um, and you could be where there were no lights. Okay, mm-hmm. there was a, you on the Waccamaw River. You would have uh, the electric co-op had not yet been started there. Okay, wow. and so uh, you know, and there wasn't a bridge across the Waccamaw River. I remember as a you know what uh, eight year old playing uh, a clarinet in a band and being on that bridge when they opened the bridge across the Waccamaw River. So North Carolina was very different. And in the 40s, I should say in 1948, almost 50 percent of our people were in poverty in this state, in our county, in our county, not in the state. So, you know, I think technology and science are the reason North Carolina is where it is today. It is the unbelievable interest in education, which was, you know, uh, a critical thing for us in our state and pushed a great deal by in the 50s by Governor Hodges and then Sanford. And it led us today, and we can talk about that later, how we arrived today. When I just looked at the poverty statistics in 2017 done by the federal government, listen, the only two states out of the South who are out of that poverty list are Virginia and North Carolina. Wow. And that's pretty amazing. Yes. That brings me to one of the other through lines of your work, and that's a very strong commitment to justice and equity. And and I'm curious if you want to just tell us a little (laughs) bit about that. I mean, we've got a little bit of a sense, but it's clearly there. Well, I grew up in in Columbus County. It's on the line with South Carolina, and the two states are very different. It'd take me a week to tell you how different we are. (laughs) We are very different. And uh, the edge of our town and the city limits abutted South Carolina. And we had a newspaper in our town called the North Carolina, I mean, the Tabor City Tribune. It was Tabor City, North Carolina, the town with a city future. It's probably still that today, but I mean, it was that then. And um, and the Klan would come across into our county, our state from South Carolina with their, uh, you know, cars with these crosses made out of a wood cross and, and lights on it. They'd put a battery on and it'd flash on and off the Klan. And uh, my dad, the summer he died, uh, was standing with me. We lived on Main Street and and on the porch and said to me, you know, Jane, we don't believe like these people. He said, uh, you know, it's not the shape or the color of your skin that uh, should determine who you are. He said, what really determines who you are, Jane, is education and and your belief that everyone should be able to be what they want to be. So... That was my dad, believe it or not. He was born in 1880-something, and I think that passed down from his family. Mm-hmm. And so uh, our town, um, this the last time the Klan was uh, actually um, uh, put in jail. I think 100-something people went to jail from uh, as a result of our newspaper continuously uh, editorializing against the Klan. He won the, still the smallest newspaper to ever win a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, as a result of what um, Editor Carter did. And so from that day on, you know, I was talked by my dad, who was also a Mason. He said to me, um, you know, I think he knew he was older and he probably wouldn't survive seeing me grow up. And he said, he said, you know, Jane, if you ever need anyone, I'm going to leave you my 32nd degree Masonic ring and you go see the Masons. Little did he know <laughs> that by the time I was uh, like 14 in high school, uh, almost a senior when I graduated, almost, and our principal, who was wonderful, and the politicians in our, who lived across from me, a doctor, and his brother, who was a state senator, decided they didn't like him. He was pushing them too hard about you know something from the schools and decided to get rid of him. And so um, I led a strike of the high school because they wouldn't talk to us. We went to see them and said, will you talk with us about this principal? They said, no. And I went back home and said, Mom, I said, um, I, that's wrong. 
you know, here we studied all this time about the need to take responsibility for what you want to achieve. And we need to keep this guy, at least till I graduate. <laughs> I said, he's great. Where do you get a guy that, and I knew I had a good friend named uh, Laramore and I knew he couldn't afford to go to college and he's smart. And all of us, small high school, 54 people in my class. And so he would take them by the hand and go to universities with them and say, let me help you get in school. You know, let me help this person mm-hmm. needs a scholarship. We had a strike. We And I went to the Masons and said, hey, how about uh, this? I have my dad's Masonic ring. And I said, my dad said, y'all would help me if I needed something. What do you need, Jane? I said, well, we want to teach classes over here in the Masonic Lodge. It's across from the school. It's huge. And we're going to stay here. We need somewhere to, it's going to be raining. It's supposed to be, we need a shelter. And he said, we'll give you shelter. And that's what you want to do. We'll feed you. <laughs> so, nice. And it's the first time we had seen a television camera. They came down from Raleigh to see who were these kids <laughs> that were doing this. <laughs> so, um, and finally, they agreed to meet with us. And so we met with them and told them why we thought what they were doing was wrong. Well, what's the issue? Well, because he talked back to them. He spoke to them and used the power he had on behalf of us, the students. And so finally they, they backed down and they kept him until I graduated. And then later, years later, when I was the chief administrative officer of the state, I went down to speak to the chamber, which was meeting there from the county. And my cousin, who was in the legislature, stood up and said, well, Jane's here tonight. Perhaps I shouldn't tell her that y'all are trying to fire a principal again. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, so, but from then on, you know, when I got to college, I was in the first class at Chapel Hill that had um, undergraduate students who were African-American. There had been a couple that had gone to law school, but not to, you know, undergraduate school. And um, it was rough for them. And, and we sort of got together, some of us, to try to support them and help them and would eat with them and, and talk to them and try to get them involved with us. And they're all smart and all great. The guy I married, um, we were in student government, and I went over to the Y and said, hey, I, I want to go after a foundation grant. I know there are foundations out there. Um, and the Y director, Ann Queen, said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to get two students from every college we can get in the South to come to Chapel Hill, and let's talk about building the New South so that we create a cadre of people across the South that we know can work together for the good of the South. And she said, well, that's a great idea. And so I also knew that there was the National Student Association and that their um, Connie, uh, who was their person over the South, had been talking to me and she thought there was a you know, a foundation in Chicago that might be interested. And so she said, oh, there's this other guy. So I met him. His name was Hank. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we signed an application, and we put together a conference. Uh, we got uh, $25,000, which was a lot of money back then. And uh, we we brought students together um, for a whole week in Chapel Hill to talk about building the New South with, you know, in terms of uh, voting and elections and education and religion and politics and business. And it really has set a cadre of people for us across the South that, we've known and been able to work with. So from then on, it was Katie Barr, the Dorcas. I thought, ah, if we can do this for people, you know, as my dad said, who have a different color, but I can do this for the shape of the skin. (laughs) So we started working on equal rights. And so that's how I got involved in that. Well, so tell me, how did that, what's the short version of between that and being a go-to person on broadband in the early 90s? Well, I had finished, uh, I'd won the math medal in high school. My brother 
um, you know, was getting his doctorate in aeronautical engineering at state. And um, I was in college and, you know, with physics and math and international studies. It was just my um, sort of broad interest. They did not have a computer science program in this in the United States at that time. And in 1961, there were two schools working on that, one just on a program, which was Purdue. And um, at Chapel Hill, they were working on an entire department. But I had graduated early, um, and, and so I, you know, it wasn't up, open when I went there. And so when we went to Philadelphia, this is getting there quickly, with, uh, Hank went to work with the National Student Association to oversee students from about 40 foreign countries because Bob Kennedy had passed a, gotten a program through that wanted those people to come and study in a university and and see us as a you know bastion of freedom and how we operated and uh, we'd had some at Chapel Hill and and Hank went to run that program nationally and um I went and um with with my interest and went over to the University of Pennsylvania where the ENIAC had been founded and um the department working the most with computers at that time was um psychology department in what was called mathematical psychology. Dr. Robert Bush, who actually wrote that handbook. And I went to work for him. And I learned how to code an LGP thirty computer uh with tape. I didn't have those cards. Even the IBM machine had cards back at that time. And so um <laughs> until they converted it to uh the three sixty. And so that's how I got involved. And um I had been very close to lots of folks in the Sanford, Governor Sanford, um Joel Fleischman, who later started the Institute of Politics at Duke, Terry, who became president of Duke, and um, and Tom Lambos, who became head of the Reynolds Foundation. Um, they were like mentors of mine and Hanks, and those are those younger people. They were student government folks. When I when we came back and he went to law school, I brought that back, and we arrived back there in '63. And um, I went to work with Lyle Jones, who led that effort in mathematical psychology. And so from then on, it was, uh, what can I do to help North Carolina be, you know, we had started, they'd, they'd already started the Research Triangle Park, uh, which is the largest, really, research park in the world and most successful um, that they started back then. And, um, and, and you know, at that point, and this will sound interesting to a lot of women, <laughs> Hank uh, finished law school and I was, while well, I was working those three years there, and I worked nationally then with MIT Stanford, University of Chicago, and those on um, research and, and what was going on in this whole new, you know, wonderful field of, of data and basically data science. And um, and then dropped out when Hank went to Clark for a uh, United States uh, Court of Appeals judge on the Fourth Circuit to have two kids, okay? Mm-hmm. And so for about four or five years, I was out of that but watching it and talking to folks about what was going on and what I might want to do ultimately, but knew if I wanted to have kids, I had to, at that time, there was not a lot of daycare licensing around and that I needed to be able to be with the boys. So my love of music and um, led me to, uh, and, and into equality, led me to get involved with politics and, and stuff at that time and also civil liberties. And they needed someone to run the, Civil Liberties, North Carolina Civil Liberties Union just started 65 people. Now there are 30,000 in North Carolina who are members of that. And uh, and so I took that on without really any money to help get it started and grow and kept it for about three years. And then when he moved over um, to Greensboro, you know, to start practicing law, and ultimately I got involved in um, campaigns for Jimmy Carter 
and for Jim Hunt, and then chaired the Democratic Party there because I saw that was an avenue that would lead us to uh, being able the National Women's Political Caucus I was involved in helping, and I actually wrote a book called Run Maggie Run, which was getting women to run for office at that time. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so you know, it, it seems like you could be describing the highlights from ten different people's lives. <laughs> No, but I mean, it was, uh, you know, and the two boys, uh, I instilled in them a love of music and, and when they were young and uh, not just rock and roll. I mean, they loved, they, I was really into the, you know, high flute and symphony music stuff. And um, and we raised money to support the uh, young people getting into symphonies. And that's still going today at Guilford College, uh, the, you know, where the first chairs come down and work with them in the summer, sort of a pipeline for them into the major mm-hmm. orchestras. And um, and North Carolina had a symphony orchestra. The state's been incredible in that it did a symphony orchestra of its own. It did a uh, an art museum of its own. You know, it's uh, the state's always been interested in the arts and in education. Um, well, and it's hard sometimes when people who come to North Carolina who are from other states, and God bless, we have a lot of them wanting to come here. <laughs> you have to explain to them, you know, you know, no, we, you know, we like country music, but we love symphony music too. I mean, it's uh, the state is always instilled, even in early years in school, you were always talked to about art and education and music and and one final thing, and this we sometimes it takes forever to get something done. When the first colony was established in the U world, Sir Walter Raleigh Colony, they brought with them in the second boat, I guess, a man named Gans, G-A-N-Z. He was some Czechoslovakian Jew, and he started the first research uh, lab in the whole world here, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, um, in in North Carolina. Only about two weeks ago was the first flight society in in the... um, the research, I mean, the uh, Roanoke Island Society, able to get a sign-up honoring this man. <laughs> so, you know, it does take a long time. Well, yeah, and I mean, I would say that, that judging from a lot of the things you just rattled off, there's no there's no shortage of things to be commemorating uh, throughout North Carolina. Although, I'll hasten to add that I think a lot of the people listening to this show will be in North Carolina, and so you don't have to be convincing them of how wonderful it is. <laughs> Well, but, you know, there are other things that I think even we have. We used to be the most homogeneous state of any state in the country. Really? I find and that I hard always to believe. Said, yeah. Yeah. No, no. And I always said it was. Well, girl, it was. And, and I, I think because uh, we have our oceans and, and they were not as easy to get to. And we have our mountains and they were not as easy to traverse. And so this state has. Next to California, and you can read some things that say we're first, but next to California, we have the largest number of paved highways in the entire country. Hmm. And so the roads, and, and so this, that's something to remember for anyone listening, is that getting those roads paved really started our first exit to the outside world, and that is developing the trucking industry in North Carolina. We had the largest trucking industry of any state initially. Um, and that was because we had the roads, and that meant you could build factories and stuff and get your products out. I mean, it's uh, so you know the state's been always been. I think uh, they had really good uh, legislature that is. We'll get back to the problems with it later on. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> but we've always at that time had a good legislature, <laughs> you know, pushing things to develop the state. Well, let's talk about in in the 90s when you created the Rural Internet Access Authority, uh, which later uh, became known as ENC. 
And and I'm curious in particular because it seems to me that at the time in which you were creating that, it wasn't entirely obvious that this would be an issue that really needed to be expanded across the entire state because it wasn't clear what a role it would play. People were still debating if there was going to be a lot of commerce on it in the future. <laughs> um, well, they just weren't thinking. That's all I can say. Uh, that hasn't um, changed. You know, <laughs> no, but I mean, no, it, it was coming because we had done in um, the first digital um, connection of a state to the state getting completely digital when I was secretary of administration. And we, we were able, you know, we had to connect with people all across our state. When you're looking at 100 counties and you're looking at uh, oceans to the mountains, and weather that can change, can, you know, tremendously between uh, leaving, you know, in your ocean on this side and going to the mountains. Uh, we had to be able to be connected to be able to really grow as a society and as uh, in our industries that would be out there, so that you didn't leave parts of the state out. And so, as a result, um, we we actually allowed the uh, municipalities to come on our state telephone network when we went digital, and when we distributed the first distributed network of any state. Um, back from, I guess it was 78 to 83 in that time frame. We also had the same issue with creating the North Carolina um, School of Math and Science. So we had people coming from across the state to students who could come free, uh, who could meet the standards of their last two years of high school. Um, so, because we wanted to raise the education level, the science and math level of North Carolina, so we could have the industries that would keep our state clean, the environment clean. You know, thank God we weren't West Virginia with coal. We we sort of looked at it that way. But uh, at that time, we knew that we, you know, it, that was just the beginning. Because you need to realize, I had been up there working with the computer in the ENIAC, and it was coming. I mean, think about it from, you know, getting back in '64 from up there. And it was only, um, think about till 70, it was only until basically we did that first information highway in 92. That's a number of years, but that's the slowest it's ever been converting from something, that kind of technology to, you know, at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, now on it's, it's Katie bar the door. It's so fast, you know, <laughs> and trying to keep up with what's happening. And so we wanted North Carolina to um, benefit from that, not just I'd grown up in Columbus County, and I wanted the people in Columbus County to benefit. So we we really worked at that time with everyone. We brought in the the electric co-ops, the you know the the uh, telephone co-ops. We brought all of the big companies, all of them. I mean, you know, it was Bell South then before it became you know AT and T, uh, GTE before it got to be Verizon, uh, Carolyn Telephone before it got to be you know four or five generations later, you know, in the matter of ten years, CenturyLink, and um, Everybody working together, and everybody worked really together to uh, to create that with about I don't know ten or eleven committees working and uh, all kinds of things that were you know we had just uh, begun at that time in ninety one ninety two ninety three I was chairing the Global Spatial Data Initiative to normalize metadata across the world because that was coming and we knew that if we didn't get it normalized we'd end up with how many countries trying to deal with it, transferring data. And so mm-hmm. only North Carolina and and the Defense Department and Forest Service would join us. And then we joined Urogi and, and the uh, Ordnance Command in England and Canada and Australia and, you know, in Germany and, you know, it was six continents and six years and normalized that metadata. So the metadata is what's creating all these apps and everything around to go across that network. And we knew that if we didn't be first, 
you know, who wants to be last in converting to the new technology and uh, being able to get IBM to get GlaxoSmithKline? Uh, our biotech center was set up at that time. The microelectronics center was set up. You know, our biotech center, everybody said, why the hell are y'all doing that? You know, 700 companies have come out of that. Think about that. Yeah, I not mean, small ones so either. North Car- <laughs> no, and North Carolina, I mean, and then in, in the microelectronics uh, um, area, and MCNC and the Semiconductor Institute and the RTI, which is now one of the largest research institutes around in the whole in the whole world uh, with research. Uh, but you had, you know, um, Ericsson coming. Uh, I can remember the day that Governor Hunt said, you want to do what, Jane? I said, I want to meet these people from the West Coast and see the name of their company is Cisco. <laughs> he said, what? <laughs> I said, yep. And he said, well, you go ahead. He said, you're not, you're not, not someone that really uh, gets real estate people to come in, but you talk to them. And I said, well, they might want some real estate here. Well, now, you know, there's 12,000 here. And it, it's... Uh, and we have the same with SAS, started and incubated at State uh, with uh, Goodnight and with uh, John Saul. And they have over 13,000 that are there. I mean, so all of this, we're all kinds of folks thinking, how do we take advantage, working together, of our universities? Think about this. Four Research One universities in the state, that's pretty unbelievable. And 13, you know, 13 universities uh, that were public I guess 16, if you start counting, like the School of Science and Math gets counted in there, et cetera. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to, uh, I'm just trying to imagine where else we see. That. I mean, you, you know, you kind of think the the Boston region um, out in in California, and um, and maybe one or two other locations, but there's just not a lot where you have that level of sophistication for that sort of thing. We have 30, we have 36 public, I mean, private uh, schools. And two universities that are private, I'm counting in as one of the four, and that's Wake Forest and, and Duke. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and the research triangle has, you know, Duke, NC State, and Wake Forest, I mean, and, uh, and Carolina. That's incredible. And so the people of this state have been willing to support education at the higher level, and at the time, also our community college system, which really does fantastic work. You shouldn't be more than 45 minutes from any community college in North Carolina. Let me poke you on the Internet Access Authority. I'm, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about is, was, was North Carolina a leader in the 90s on trying to spread the benefits of, of the Internet across the entire state fairly evenly? Yeah, it was. I mean, because when we would, and and only that, we worked as missionaries to a lot of states, <laughs> a lot of us did, <laughs> trying to talk them into to doing something. Uh, because you know, and particularly those in the South, I was out with the governor's Western University when it you know to help them figure out what to do to set that up. I was out with Mike Lovett and and those there. I mean, I was in Hawaii with them on helping them set up Hawaii One. And the governor would let me go out as a missionary <laughs> practically, so to work with folks. Um, Listen, here's the issue, and the main issue to get to in the Rural Internet Access Authority is this. It was established basically in 99, and we opened it up in 2000. It's state legislated, and at the time, it had all kinds of people, the way North Carolina generally does stuff, try to get all aspects of anyone that's going to be involved. Even it's better to have them opposing you under the tent than outside the tent. And so everybody was on there. I mean, you know, different parts of the uh, the community of uh, folks in, in information technology and networks, communication networks, and and uh, although it was called the Rural Internet Access Authority, and it had been actually, and you find this interesting, the person who actually introduced the bill was a senator named Eric Reeves, whose father was one of the three that founded EDS with Ross Perot. Okay. Okay. And so. Um, 
a Duke graduate who stayed here. <laughs> so we were able to work together and to uh, really come up with a lot of laws and changes that would help us move ahead. And um, even, um, you know, these companies uh, were in favor of everything we were doing until we got to be too successful. Okay. Uh, I mean, because they all supported it initially. Um, they really came after me uh, to want to try to get me fired. Uh, they said RIA. Um, and we were able to win a number of the battles in the legislature. And basically when it slipped at one point with with another party is when we really lost the first go around. And when they began to spend the amount of money that they spent and that they spend nationally today to prevent and I hate to say it this way, but what it does, it may not have been their their modus operandi, but it prevents rural areas from getting connected, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, they're willing to connect the urban areas because they have the income coming in from the population, but not willing to do the rural areas. And But we had defeated, I don't know how many times the law, H-129, and when we had the change in parties at that time, we lost it. Right, so in, starting in in like 2005 maybe even, but I really noticed it from 2007 through 2010. Uh, every year, yeah. Time Warner Cable, AT&T, and some others were, were trying to limit uh, local authority, particularly they were worried about Wilson, and they wanted to make sure that Wilson was the last municipal network. And um, the bill that you mentioned, HB 129, uh, that finally passed in 2011 after the legislature flipped in 2010. Um, because there was hearings every year, and it seemed like every year we worried about it and we educated people about the dangers of limiting local investment for local internet choice and the um and the legislature in twenty eleven let Time Warner Cable basically run the show is what it felt like well and and let's be upfront about it though and say that that wasn't the case initially with the r i a they all supported it initially, and it wasn't just uh, the big companies I mean we had companies like North State which deserve, you know, the palm or I mean, they need the, the cross of gold <laughs> because they were incredibly supportive and went ahead and deployed fiber in High Point and so forth and, you know, and provided it in the, the counties a long time before the AT&T started uh, posing it. And interesting enough, just to point this out for you, to today, did you notice that North, North uh, State just last week announced they were selling to uh, Segra, 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 and um, and they've done so well, you know. And I'm glad to see them as, and they're a family-owned company. They they could have been killed if if you know. And they they sat right there between, you know, Forsyth County, Guilford, and and High Point was part of Guilford in the southern part, and Bell South had the northern part, um, which became AT and T, but um, as well. So I really was surprised that they would come after me because. When we did the first information highway, there was nothing going on in this country like that. And they were getting sweat equity along with the sweat equity of folks in municipalities and in, and in state government, et cetera, who were working to put this new technology, uh, you know, like the Wright brothers. <laughs> we, were, we were trying to open up North Carolina to be able to really um, benefit I don't mind saying this because I think it worked out the right way. But I remember talking to the president of Bell South and saying to him, I said, what's happening to Bill Smith? And he's the lead engineer that they'd had with us. And he'd been their person at the ITU in Geneva where they were doing the standards for all of the new technologies. He said, well, he's going to be going to Charlotte to head up the 1,000 installers. I went, what? (laughs) The person who knows more about the the new technology of the next 
50 years and you're going to send to be an installer head of said, that's crazy he needs to be with you down there in Birmingham and your Bell South thing working with the folks there to talk about how you have the interconnection of networks with digital technology and fiber and so about three weeks later when I said to him and by the way this is coming from you who wrote your MIT thesis on how you could have two members of the family who could actually operate within a company at the same time one man and one woman married to each other I mean, you were so thinking so far ahead and you're going to do something like this? <laughs> anyway, and about three weeks later, he called and said, well, we're bringing him down. And he later became the head of AT&T's uh, network operations when they all merged over in, you know, in Texas. So, I mean, a lot of the people who were involved in that went straight to the top in their companies and they never would have had the opportunity to put this country ahead. What you're saying is that is that there was a period in which, you know, private sector, public sector, everyone was working together to figure out Work how together. to expand this yeah. to, to everyone. And then all of a sudden, you know, there was this like a sense of like, you know, rather than growing the pie, there was a sense of how do I just capture a slice of it? And I'm going to be happy with that is what it, it seems like. Well, it, it was really it was really bad. I mean, it was uh, if you would walk in the legislature, you know, uh, you were a pariah to anybody who was uh you know, with their uh, particular company. But if you were around rural people, you were like a savior. <laughs> so, uh, it was really sort of a strange time. And then literally they did try to get me fired. And uh, it happened that the former uh, chancellor of the university, who was uh, head of the RIAA, who knew me well, because I had gone down to help him work with the university. And we did the first integrated community network in the world down there to show it could, you know, operate and could happen. And uh, he, he backed me up. He was, he was really great. Uh, but I didn't know when I walked in the room that day, I mean, I, I found out about it because people who were down low in their companies began to tell me, this is terrible. This is what they're trying to do to you. For someone who was coming from the information technology industry, uh, really, which is where I was coming from, from the connective, you know, from the bits and bytes of data you write to do applications and stuff. It was interesting that the folks from the telephone industries were really upset originally and worried about this. And they had a separate group inside of the state, you know, that they just did telephones. You do mm-hmm. this, you know. And and so one division of the information technology group and then the other group were all the people writing data, et cetera. And so I wanted to make sure that we did not put broadband under them, just like I made sure we did not put the GIS uh, that we started in uh, 78 as a, basically a, a 501c3 inside government that sold its services. We We didn't put them under the folks who had the computers because – they really did not want to admit that was going to happen, that all of this was going to migrate to them. And rather than let them kill it, you know, we kept it separate until basically I uh, came back in and, uh, I, you know, I, I left and worked in, in industry until I came back in 92 to or 91 to UNCW to help them with that. And we did that pilot. And then when Hunt got in the second time, um, he wanted me to come back, and I said, only if you'll let us do the highway across the state. Hey, you know you can do that. Go ahead. So mm-hmm. he's great. He was really great. So so you can see that that's what you have to do sometimes in government is isolate those things from someone who owns this and doesn't want to make the pie bigger. That's right. And we've, we've definitely seen that elsewhere. Um, but I want to ask you, the thing that really kills me about this, this turfism, the way that we saw the, some of the ISPs and trying to figure out how to try to stop cities from doing it, is that 
you might think, well, of course they're worried that maybe 100 cities in North Carolina might build their own networks and, and really change the competitive landscape. But I don't see if I don't see a history in which a hundred cities build a network, right? I mean, this is this is not something that is broadly appealing to cities. They they generally don't want to do this. They want to find some way of getting it without them. And so, you know, how much energy do you think has just been wasted over the years on this fight to try and stop the few cities that are motivated and have the capacity to do it? Let's explain one reason why they're not a lot that are able to do it. Okay. We have like 500-something municipalities in North Carolina, okay? Right. Uh, less than 100 would be able to do this. The big issue is that it was the same issue as with the original Bell South when we were doing the initial network under you know under them to convert everything in North Carolina across the highway. And they had their portion and folks at you know, other places had their portion. Um, and the big issue was um, at the time was who had a billing system, Okay. Without a billing system, you can't do it. You know, if you've got water and you've got sewer and you've, you know, like um, the folks in, in Wilson, then you can do it because that billing system will kill you. I mean, Bell South, we had real problems with Bell South working with them the first couple of years, even with state government as big as we were, because they had not affected how to charge for that across the network. Okay. <laughs> right. So, uh, and so that's the issue. I think they wouldn't have to worry about that. I mean, I don't. I don't know what other industry would be. Uh, you know, I don't know. What I was just trying to think: is there another idea of an industry that would have that problem? You know, I don't. I can't think of one. Can you? No, I mean, I, I often think about if Starbucks waged, waged a campaign to make coffee brewing machines illegal in government offices or something like that. Yeah, you know, or if you were in cars. And, and uh, you know, the people were beginning to do trucks, you know, could you go out and say, well, you can't run a truck over this if it's uh, over 2,000 pounds, okay? And you, know, you can't do that because that's what we do, you know? <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And it hurts this country. It hurts the capability of the country to be in industry and to amass industries uh, if every time you go from one area to the next, you got to switch to another because that person can't work with you. And I mean, it's crazy. One of the things that we saw and, and, and has been repeated is this uh, the claim. I mean, if you take the legislation at its word, it wasn't trying to stop cities from building networks. It was trying to basically give private companies the certainty that they would be able to invest without facing unfair competition. Now, let's assume for a second that that's a, a legitimate analysis. We Both you and I disagree that that's what the, the legislation did. But have you seen more investment in rural North Carolina because private companies then believed that they wouldn't face competition from the public sector? No. N-O. Capital N-O. That, you know, think about where we are. 93, when we did the North Carolina Information Highway, think about where we are. And it's the same, it's the same principle if you were to look at the whole country as a whole. When we developed um, the Internet at DARPA, Defense Advanced Projects Agency, which don't, I don't want to confuse some people because sometimes it's ARPA and they go back to DARPA, but it's, it's basically the same thing. And they created basically the Internet. That's what they really, really created it. This country is now 17th in the world in connectivity. What's it doing? It's not to these companies that are here in the United States. It's, ha it's harming every citizen, every company in the United States, everyone who wants to do business around the world. 
depending on where they live, can they get involved in world economic enterprise or U.S. economic enterprise? They can't get involved if they're somewhere where they can't get on the net, right? Would you agree with me? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a fact. That's what it does. In the long run, it harms the big companies as well. Um, if you're so busy worrying about whether you know they're going to pass a law to make sure you have all the benefits, uh, you're not working on innovation for what's coming next. I mean, you're just you're just sort of sitting there trying to protect yourself like you're in a some kind of a, a fort. Well, what should we be doing? What should we be thinking about now? I mean, we're in this position. I think um, I think the rural areas have lost a lot of of um, of potential investment over the years because of the way local governments have been handcuffed. And and I and I think you would agree with me. Let's start let's start right here with this as we dig into this slightly weightier topic, but. You know, even though, as you and I said, there's less than 100 cities in North Carolina that would want to build and operate their own network, there are a lot of counties and city governments that would like to invest in infrastructure that they could partner with someone, with an existing ISP, um, to make sure that Internet access is available. And that's also been handicapped. Yeah, well, that's true. The the difference, if we just put one thing before you get to that, is that the uh, telephone co-ops who have been very thoughtful, innovative. Uh, one that down where I grew up uh, in, in uh, ATCOM down there, Atlantic, uh, they wanted to move ahead to every single home with the Internet. And um, at the time, they knew they couldn't do it. It was a 50-year payback. And when the Obama initiative came with the money for trying to help the United States, rural America, uh, when that and, and, and the states and the 50 states to get them to move ahead and be innovative and get, get with it, um, they had a vote of their um, their citizens and said, what happens if we had a 20-year payback? And they said, move ahead. And mm-hmm. so they started to move ahead, and that's when the uh, actual funds were capability came out, and they applied for that. They just got another big grant, and they're moving now into Columbus County, which is the county next door, very rural. You know, I said the Waccamaw Bank and Trust on the you know, on a border county, almost in every state, unless it's a big city, and you're on the border of a state, you are disadvantaged. I mean, and we can prove that to you in in looking at the country. And so Columbus County sits, you know, 20 miles away from the ocean, so it doesn't get all the tourism stuff. And so in some cases there in one town, they didn't have enough bandwidth coming into the town for people to use an ATM. And so now this... this, um, Co-op is going to move straight into that county, and had just gotten a grant to uh, to do that from the great grant, I guess it is in North Carolina now, the one that we have here uh, mm-hmm. from the state. I, I don't want to sound partisan at all, uh, because you know the first money we got for the information highway, the first four million dollars, was the Republicans were actually uh, had control of the House at the time, I think, and it was a Republican, Charlie Preston, from up in Union County, who worked with me to get the first $4 million for the state to begin to invest in doing that. So, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, it's it's whether they're looking forward and how they can advance their state or their county. So, um, unfortunately, a lot of money goes in, but the millions that go in, not just to our state, but to the federal to write legislation that would prevent you from going into certain areas if some of the phone companies are in there, you know, or if one home, you know, a census tract, if one home has that, um, they can assert that they are actually uh, providing service to that one home. Somebody else can't come in as another company and says, I want to serve that area. I'll connect everybody. They can't. Right. They can't get a grant to do that. 
No, they can't get a grant. Mm-mm. I can't get money to do it. I just want to, to clarify for people who um, there's nothing to stop them from putting their own money in there, which, as you and I know, is not no, um, a profitable true. return. Yeah. Um, but I just want to because sometimes people get, get confused about this. And the way that government in the United States maintains monopoly is uh, usually sneaky <laughs> and tricky um, as opposed to being outright. I mean, the, the lobbyists who write that are, are quite good at it. Um, but let's let me just go back. I mean, you mentioned um, the, the telephone call up there that's that's expanding in in eastern north carolina all of the telephone co-ops should be now almost to every one of their homes that's the telephone co-op but the electric co-ops are just beginning to get into that one of the things that we've seen is that wilkes which is um expanding rapidly in both north carolina and virginia under the river street name which is a subsidiary um, they would very much like to expand more rapidly in partnership with local governments but they are stopped from doing so and um, we don't have to talk too much about that because they're actually going to be the next series the next episode in this series um, but i just wanted to to note that that north carolina law is slowing down investment still in rural areas today well there's no doubt about that it's uh you have to have a good balance sheet which i think river street does with you know with with their full company which is a lot of different companies but but river street has that capability you have to have someone who has the skill and the knowledge to actually run a net i mean a, a series of companies a network in you know, subsidiaries like that and then you also have to have someone who's strong enough that they're willing to stand up to some of the uh, issues they have to deal with in the legislature, and and they're big. They've grown big, and so they can handle it better. But if you're a small electric co-op or you're a small telephone co-op, you know it's hard for you to have the time to play the political game that you have to play. You know, both with your municipality and with the state legislature, to be able to take your eyes off what you're doing already and running a company, a small, you know, small co-op. Like there are nine co-ops, and then you've got. Um, uh, many more electric co-ops. I mean, the state is so rural. And the other issue is 5G is so hyped that I want everyone <laughs> in the sound of my voice to hear this. Unless you have fiber driving this, you are going to have a company that won't make it if it's 5G without having fiber driving it. Okay. Fiber is critical. One of the things that I've really enjoyed is T-Mobile. Um, now that they're rolling out a 5G service in, in more rural areas, they have been forced, uh, because of much con- confusion in the market, to clarify that if you live in a more rural area, and, and frankly, this right. even if you're in a more urban area today, um, that the 5G, quote-unquote 5G, is going to be 20% faster than the, than a 4G LTE because they're using the low-band spectrum. And for people who are interested, there's a number of places you can go. We always recommend Doug Dawson's uh, Pots and Pans for uh, explanations of this sort of stuff. But yes, I mean, in, in a lot of places, the 5G is going to be barely faster than the the 4G. And, and to the extent it will be faster, it's going to be, you know, in the, the Durham Bay baseball stadium and things like that. It's not necessarily even going to be in the suburbs for a while. So um, yeah, 5G, such a red herring. But let me ask you just as we're, as we're wrapping this up, what is your hope that like in, in 2020, what are we hoping to see that will really bring North Carolina, um, you know, give, give rural communities a real shot at, at all of the benefits of modern technology and quality of life? 
Well, I mean, it, it can't be done within a year. You know that. <laughs> sure. What, what do we need to do to set us on the right path? <laughs> I think what has to be done is that, uh, you know, we need a lot of people who are focused on the counties that don't yet have that connectivity um, and a lot more focus at helping build the, within the communities themselves a push for getting that. Uh, you know, community, like when we did the initial highway, we, uh, we had eight communities in all 100 counties. We actually funded, I mean, this sounds like it's not a lot of money, but we had 100 counties and we, get, we took $10,000 a county and gave it to the county manager and we worked with all of them to develop a plan for them to be able to get connectivity. I mean, to get also a site in their town that I think the second thing is to get a site in their town that is as free as possible to the citizens to use and learn to use the uh, the networks. Um, a lot of people think it's just great to have a Facebook, uh, you know, page and to, um, you know, send stuff around to everybody and their, you know, their relatives and stuff. And that's great. But what they need to start learning is how to use the different apps that are available out there and to be able to, you know, to have it in their homes. And many times they, they don't have enough bandwidth coming into their homes when they don't have, you know, access to the appropriate networks to be able to use those to start their own business and to run it out of their home or if they have an elderly relative with them to go on a telehealth network and be able to get to a doctor, you know, as often as you can over the telehealth network. Or for that matter, if they want to be able to, uh, you know, go online and see their grandchildren rather than in a, you know, actual um, snapshot that comes through the mail or something and, and, and talk with them, you know, to have the capability, the bandwidth to do really uh, good video uh, calls, et cetera. And healthcare. It's the most critical, I think, thing facing North Carolina in our rural communities. If you look at our mountains, at the percentage of people who are over 65, it's high. It's high compared to the rest of our state. And we're losing rural hospitals, where, you know, and that's going to be a problem for the issue of maternity um, in the maternity time frame for women who are pregnant and who need to be able to uh, see doctors on a regular basis. And they could do that with telehealth. And the other issue is they have to drive to have their, their baby for almost some, and now we're getting where hospitals, not just in North Carolina, but in lots of places in this country, they'll have to drive two hours to get to a hospital to give birth. Or, you know, think about it, if they have a small hospital near them, they still have a problem with uh, if the child is born with significant disease and it doesn't have the capability to have someone in and do service with, you know, over um, like they have at East Carolina to come in and do service, uh, uh, I mean, uh, operation directly over the highway. There are all kinds of things that are going to happen, and they won't have that access. And it means in the long run that we don't have the the economic uh, mobility that we want to have in the state between areas as well. People say, well, why do you need these e-communities or e-councils? You know, they still need them there because people – if they come together, they're much more willing to advocate for what they need as a community or a county um, than just by themselves. And uh, I think that's important. Secondly, there should be something at the federal level, two things that they should change, in my opinion. One of the most important things they should change 
is a more um, GIS-focused uh, requirements of companies to file their information uh, on GIS so they can see exactly where the homes are and where they exist, et cetera, rather than mm-hmm. just, you know, you have one house in the district. That that they're talking about doing, okay? And so that that is there. And so I think that's important. The other issue for me is net neutrality. When we first started um, with the digital highway and getting people online, teachers uh, who were in remote North Carolina wanted to actually be able to, uh, you know, take courses at night when they got home rather than come to the School of Science and Math for their, um, you know, updated classes, okay? One of them called me one day and said, I got a bill and it cost me $300 and it was all access across the Internet back to the main office. Net neutrality will do that to them again, or can. They can if they have the right to manipulate the data that's coming down in, in favor of a big business that's few uh, 50 miles away from you, and then you're wanting something at your house uh, to be able to take the class. That net neutrality, if it's not uh, you know, holding you harmless, <laughs> um, can cost you money. Oh, yes. And I think one of the, the main ways that we're seeing that right now is with these data caps, uh, which is to say that I, I think um, it wasn't clear when we were having the last go around in 2015 about net neutrality. At that point, we were definitely more concerned about uh, the Internet service providers blocking sites or, or slowing them down. Now it seems more like a company like AT&T says, okay, you can only transfer this much data on our wired service per month. But if you are you know, getting your Internet service from us, we won't count HBO against you. We won't count these other properties that we own against you. Yeah, which means that they're incur- they're basically using their market power in in one area, the fact that they, that you might only be able to get broadband from them, to then try to get you to use more of their other products in ways that would disadvantage other companies. I mean, in this case, the example is often Netflix, but really we're more worried about the vulnerable smaller companies that are the ones that'll be the next Netflix. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is a significant concern. I, th- I think the most important thing is eternal vigilance by those people who know enough to be able to try to make sure that the system is honest and that it's open. You don't have to constantly be looking at every FCC order that comes out uh, to see if it's being ethical and honest about what they're trying to do. Is it affecting everybody in a similar way or is it, you know, really an issue that, uh, you know, affects this company versus, uh, or this technology versus another technology? It's, uh, and who are the people who are there making those decisions? Do they really understand this? Right. We want to, we want structures in which we can, it should be as easy as electricity. You shouldn't have to be some kind of, of expert to be able to be able to make decisions about your home internet access and things like that. It should just work and we can make it work. We just have to get it done. Well, and I think if people, um, if people were to look at the amount of money that's spent in lobbying, um, legislators at the state level, and, and it may very well get down to the municipal level if you have or at the federal level, uh, it's an enormous amount of money that's really going into the system. They could spend some other way on innovation, you know. So, mm-hmm. North Carolina has benefited from science and technology. Um, we started looking at the trucks, as I pointed to you, and the highways, and uh, and paving the highways so people would get out of the ruts. And we went from for the work we've done on science and technology and moving ahead from basically in the 1940s when you had 46% of our people who were in poverty to where you don't even show up. 
uh, of the top 10, you know, states who are at the bottom uh, right now in poverty. It won't show up there anymore. We, we're way ahead of that now. And when you look at the South, there only, as I pointed out to you, only two states, Virginia and North Carolina, that are out of that category we none of us want to be in and i'm sure the rest of the south don't want to be in in that situation and so with north carolina it's been done with education science and technology and with the willingness of the people to support that to support a high school of science and math you know to support the, you know all these universities what's when you really are about the ninth largest state in population and the other thing that i think is really important about north carolina it's always been the natural environment that's been important to us, the mountains and the oceans, and technology plays a major role there. I'll just say one other thing about that. When we uh, were having so much problem with the hurricanes and with not being able to tell what was going on with the um, amount of water that would get driven up the up the estuaries into our rivers and flooding everything and so that you had no sense of the timing of when that might happen or how high it might be um, we had a professor at state and myself who got together and said what would happen if we created something and he said well i've got graduate students but i don't have the money for the sensors so the smith reynolds foundation paid seventy five thousand dollars for the sensors and he paid the graduate students and they figured out the algorithms and a new program that would tell you how much water, how high, and how fast it was going to be driven into up the rivers of our state. It turned out to be a huge new grant area for NOAA to help other parts of the of our country you know, have rivers and estuaries coming in. And it was like $75,000 from a foundation and the other from the state. So foundations need to get into this. And that's why the uh, opportunity zones I mentioned to you, foundations will be able to get in. They all have an issue with program-related investments. This is not as much a program-related investment as this is an investment, okay? Because they can do PRIs. This is a whole new way of investment. So, um, but I, I think that um, you know, science and technology has really built North Carolina. And, um, you know, it has built us in our agricultural area as well, our agricultural, uh, you know, and that's the next big open area, I think, for us. And that's in the rural areas in changing, um, you know, how things are operated. And that's why it's so important to get uh, high speed broadband into those areas. With your leadership, I, I hope that we're able to get there. And I really want to thank you for, for the, um, all the work you've done and your love of North Carolina. I, I love when, place, when people take pride of where they're from. You know, it goes back to the 1600s with my family. And the youngest person on my Scottish side who came was 12 years old when he got on his ship and sailed to this country. We're older and we can do far better than he could do. Yes. I, we just need everybody to pitch in and say, hey, we've got dirt roads out here. They really are what we call copper. And we need you to pave those roads. Give us some fiber. That's what right. the difference is. Thanks a lot, Chris. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the special YNC Broadband Matters podcast series and for listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Remember, you can follow Christopher on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. And you can also follow at NCHeartsGB on Twitter. You'll tap into all the NC Broadband Matters material there. We want to thank Shane Ivers of SilvermanSound.com for the series music. What's the Angle? Licensed through Creative Commons. And we also want to thank you for listening. Until next time.